please turn in your Bibles to 1st Peter. We're in a series of sermons this year in Peter's first letter, the, the epistle of 1st Peter. This morning is the 17th sermon in the series and we are finding ourselves in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. As you turn there, I want to share a story. When I first professed faith in college in the fall of my freshman year, it was around October, and at that time, my uh, roommate, Doug, and a few other guys on the floor of my dorm, after what had happened to me, this, this new faith in Christ, they came up to me confused, and they wanted to ask me what was going on in my life that things were so different. And I, I've shared this from the pulpit before. Uh, what Doug said to me, he came up to me with a statement and he said, dude, you've changed. Doug's question was, uh, he was right. Nothing was the same for me after that time. I thought differently. I started making new friends. I had new priorities, new habits. I had found a new normal. The problem is, though, and my family knows this well, not everything about me was new. I continued to struggle in certain particular ways, and uh, my dad's with us this morning. My new normal included talking about Jesus with everyone at all times, whether or not they wanted to. And I definitely wasn't always kind or charitable about it. I didn't take time to listen. Fast forward to today. This week I turned 53. But those are my human years. In new birth years, I'm 34 years old. How am I doing with my new normal today? The good news is that I've grown a ton since those early days, those first few days, weeks, months, years as a new believer. Looking back, honestly, I'm shocked about some of the things I said and did in the name of Jesus. I wish I could take some of that back, but I am thankful for God's ongoing work in my life, for his patience with me, for his mercy, for his forgiveness. But on the negative side, I find myself continuing to struggle with things which I would have hoped that the new birth would have cleared up by now. I find also that some of the advances and gains that I had as an 18 and a 19 and a 20 year old as a young married man, I feel like I've lost some of that. The fire, the passion, the zeal. Uh, I find as a almost 53 year old a creeping cynicism. I know none of you older men can appreciate that. I hate to say it, but at times I feel like some of my sins are even worse than when I started out walking with Jesus 34 years ago. David's prayer, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, is a great prayer. And I do pray that he would restore some of those fires that I feel in my heart may be waning. And this is a caution, by the way, to those of you who are young or first starting out in Christ, that it is a long journey with many twists and turns. I pray that God would restore the joy of my salvation, of your salvation, but I definitely don't want to go back to those naive and foolish mistakes that I made as a young believer 
in ignorance or even arrogance. Point is, the new birth brings a new normal for all of us. A new norm. A norm is a standard by which you think of it as a ruler. Uh, the, the English foot, whatever that is. The, the meter, which apparently is some fraction of a wavelength of a certain atom underneath a glass jar in France somewhere. It's helpful. That's the norm. It's the standard. The new birth brings a new normal. But what does it look like? What does God teach you about this new path that you've been placed upon? If you're a new Christian, you, you have just started your first steps in Christ. If you, like me, have been walking for Christ for many decades, what is your life supposed to look like? This is why 1 Peter has been written. It's a book in the Bible that's designed to give guidance or to help you norm your life in comparison to God's expectations, particularly in this context, Peter's context. These are Christians scattered across the Roman Empire, which was extremely hostile to Christian faith, to the Christian religion. It was seen as unpatriotic. It was seen as divisive, schismatic. It was seen as ruining families, and that's just getting started. So Peter's writing to Christians who are being viewed with suspicion, and as a result of this suspicion, they were often slandered and even persecuted. Sometimes the persecution was unofficial. That's probably when Peter was written. We probably don't. It was early enough in the Christian uh, movement that uh, persecution is not widespread and official law of the land. That's beginning at this time. But certainly in the later ages of the Christian movement and the Roman Empire, there would be calculated legal attempts to exterminate Christians one by one. So how should we conduct ourselves, finding ourselves in that sort of situation or in our context today where there are many parallels? The new normal for the Christian community from our text this morning is described. But he doesn't just describe it for you. He also wants you to know how people are going to respond when, when you live out this new normal. He wants you to know what it looks like when you're attacked. And then he wants to show you when you're attacked how you should respond in return. So we're going to see that in this this morning's message. My title is The New Normal. How does Peter describe it? What does it look like when it's attacked? And what should your response be? How should you defend yourself? Let's begin by reading God's Word. I'll read verses 13 through 17, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray, or let's read first. First Peter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, 
than for doing evil. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Thank you, God, that you've given us a new normal in Christ. With the new birth, we have been set on a path, a way of living that is radically different from the world around us and perhaps from the way that we used to live. Thank you for the reminder already in this morning's sermon that this is not an easy standard to follow. And so, God, we need to uh, be refreshed in what this norm should look like for us and how we should respond when it is opposed by society or even by people that we know that are near and dear to us. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that the preaching of the word would be an encouragement to both young and old, to both uh, Christians who have been walking with you for many years and those who are just getting started on the, on the path. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we define the new normal, first of all? Take a look at the text in verse 13 in your Bibles. Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? There's, there it is right there. The new normal is defined in short compass, a little phrase, being zealous, my translation says zealous, you could say eager, being eager for what is good. And it's, it's an interesting construction that bears a little unpacking. He's, he's asking a hypothetical. If you are the kind of person who, though this wasn't your normal before, though you weren't characterized before by being eager for the good, now, at this time in your life, having been born again, you are zealous for the good. In a short phrase, he's describing the results of God's work in our lives in bringing about the new birth and the fruit that that begins to display to others. By beginning with the word now, or for, in some translations, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good, Peter's showing us that there's a transition from the verses which precede. Look at verses 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, this is 1 Peter 3.10, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from doing evil, and do good. So there's the theme. The picture, Peter's quoting Psalm 34, is that I was doing evil. And God in his mercy has, has enabled me to turn around and start doing good. And the picture of the life of the godly, the life of the righteous, righteous means right, correct, true, good, and beautiful, as defined by God. The picture here is one in which we are to avoid ungodly and unholy speech. We are to avoid evil behavior, and we are consciously and positively to pursue good behavior, specifically peacemaking in our relationships and in the world. This is what the righteous do. This is what it means to be eager or to be zealous for the good. You know, Paul says no one is righteous. No, not one. All of us have turned aside. And then he says this, there is no one who does good. 
Each of us, he says, have turned aside, have become corrupt in our ways, and are pursuing ourselves. Now that's status quo. That is the, the norm for all human beings, high and low, rich and poor, all around the world for all time. That's the normal. But what happens in the new birth is that we're given a new normal. The key is Jesus. Back in 1 Peter 2, 24, we hear a little bit of this gospel promise. Verse 24 of 1 Peter 2, He, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus' death effected a transition of your norms. He has renormed you. You were using one measure of success, one measure of, of blessing, one measure of the purpose of your life, and he's given you another one. In fact, when I became a Christian, I shared a little, little snapshot of my testimony in the beginning. I had a, a trajectory in mind in my life, and it was to make a lot of money. And that was it. Now, there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money, but I, my, my objective was to make a lot of money for me. And when God gave me a new norm, he says, whatever you do with your life, I want you to serve others. I want you to help people. So he changed my mindset, and that had some specific uh, implications for me at the time where I changed a major and I went into teaching. And of course, if you're young and you're in college, you know that finding your path and uh, my daughter's getting ready to go to college, you know, what's your major? And she's, she's, she's got an answer for you, which is good. It means you won't bother her for too much. But it's a long journey and the path changes. So we find our way and, and God helped me in that moment to discover part of his path for my life a path which has led me to stand before you this morning. The logic goes like this. Apart from Christ, you can do good things. There's no question about it. There are good people that discover cures for cancer and who, who engage in positive community building, uh, who enact helpful, good laws that benefit our society. But these good things are on a flawed foundation. And as to benefiting the world, I mean, the Delta's not bad. We, we see marginal improvements by all kinds of people and all kinds of religion, all kinds of society with all kinds of views. But the fundamental change in a human nature can only take place through God in Christ. Jesus dies on the cross. Peter calls it a tree in verse 24 of chapter 2. That's an allusion to the Old Testament notion that if you hang on a tree, you are cursed what Peter is saying when he says he died on the tree is saying that he received the curse and the judgment of God that we deserved. And he gives us his righteous life as a gift. This gives you freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation, and freedom from the old normal of living your life in your way which is like driving a car very fast in the wrong direction. Now the new normal is established in someone else. 
you no longer have to figure it out, at least the big picture or the foundation. There's a lot of freedom in terms of what you do as a Christian, which path you take. But the basic issues of life, does God love me? Do I matter? Am I important? Does my life have meaning? Those questions, because of what Jesus did, are settled. And now, you are Christ's. You belong to him. You take your direction from him, and he's, he's a kind master. He's a Lord, but he's not like any of your earthly overseers. He doesn't look over your shoulder waiting for you to fail. He's not sneaking around trying to catch you in a mistake. He's also not keeping track, though he can't forget because he's Almighty God. The way he remembers is in mercy and kindness. See, he surrendered his life for you so that he'd take you all the way home. And he knows you're going to take a bunch of missteps along the way. And you may be tempted to take advantage of this positive situation that you find yourself in. He knows that too. And he is faithfully, steadily, and with great compassion and great power guiding you in this new way. I love the illustration from Scripture. Uh, Paul on the Damascus Road, you know this story, don't you? Have you heard this before? The Apostle Paul, that's his Roman name, his Hebrew name is Saul, after King Saul. He is a firebrand. I mean, you know, this is a zealot of zealots, really. And he's using his zeal as a Jewish Pharisee. He's amongst the elite strike force of the Bible hitmen in the ancient world. And he's literally taking people out, putting them in jail. And in one case, in Acts chapter 8, he's presiding over the, murder, the first murder, the first martyrdom of the first Christian, Stephen. And we know this because the story, when it's told, we see the Apostle Paul, at the time he was Saul the persecutor, they're laying their garments at Saul's feet while they go in and throw stones at Stephen to kill him, which means he's the man in charge. That's what that means. This is an extreme instance of the old normal. Now, I know some of your stories, and I don't think any of you have been charged with murder. That's Paul. That's his old norm. He saw a Christian, and he was going to lock him up or kill him. He was defining his life, at least from Jesus' perspective, by doing wrong, pursuing evil, and calling his actions righteous when they were the opposite. But God had other plans for Paul, so he interrupts Paul's evil efforts and literally stops him on the track. This is where the Damascus Road phrase comes in. Paul is on a journey from one city to the city of Damascus, and on this road, he's stopped in his tracks. So startling is the confrontation between the ascended Jesus and Paul that since then, Paul's experience on this Damascus road has become kind of a proverb for any sudden conversion that people go through, a Damascus road experience, as the saying goes. 
As proof that Paul's life was radically turned around to a new normal, listen to the conversation between Jesus, the ascended Christ, in a dream, and a man named Ananias. Lord, Ananias answered. So Ananias is being sent to go retrieve Paul and bring him into the Christian community. You get it? So Paul is being welcomed into the group of people he was previously trying to imprison and kill. And Ananias' job is to sort of begin that transition. So Ananias is uh, understandably a little upset about the prospect of going to fetch Saul, the persecutor. Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, listen here, this man is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I love this phrase, chosen instrument. It shows to me the way that for all of us, although you may not have had a Damascus Road experience, all of us, the new normal begins with recognizing that God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. And while he may not reveal it in so many words, he's given you the freedom to discover it and to find your way. You're a chosen instrument, just as much as the Apostle Paul was. When you put your faith in Christ and believe on him for eternal life, he begins a radical reorientation for you. Now, maybe you're not going to stop killing and start, you know, planting churches in the ancient world. There's only one Apostle Paul. But he has something for you. What is it going to be? What is it going to look like? Maybe you've stepped out of the path and he needs to bring you back. Maybe you're hesitant because you have a sense of what that might be and it looks scary or difficult or hard. I want to illustrate this with one more passage of Scripture before we jump back into 1 Peter. Ephesians 2. Can you turn there with me? Let's look at Ephesians 2. So this is written by Paul, the remarkable conversion story we just heard about. And so it's fun to read Paul giving advice that really resonates with Paul's own experience. And that's what we have here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It's a famous passage, and it's one that's worth committing to memory if you haven't. Circle it in your Bible. If you, ha if you write in your Bibles, this is, this is a one that you can take to the bank. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You see that? Paul was a chosen instrument. God did an amazing thing in Paul's life. So now when he's teaching other people, he's, he's reminding them that the beginning of their Christian lives is a work of God's almighty grace. Otherwise, it's, he says it's, it's the gift of God, verse 9, not a result of what? works so that no one may boast. You see, the church is not supposed to be a, a dog pile of I'm better than you sort of people. We each have a special calling to fulfill. I have mine and you have yours. And no one calling is better than another. 
It's not a, a, mer- it's not a meritocracy in the church. It's a theocracy where Jesus gets all the glory in each one of us, just like there's children in a family, each with different gifts and personalities, just like there's different parts of a body, each one is no less or more important than the other, just like no one brick in the wall is more important than the other other than maybe the cornerstone, and the cornerstone is Christ. And so we see here that, that it's not a result of works so that no one may boast, but look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What this means is the salvation given by God is all of grace, but it is one that's designed, it's, it's baked into the system that you are to live a certain way. You're to do good. You're to stop doing evil and you're to be eager, this is back to 1 Peter again, 1 Peter 3.13, that's the verse I've been on here. You're to be eager for what is good. You're born again, you're forgiven of your sins. That's wonderful. But he did that for a purpose, that you would be eager for good works, that you would do good, that you would seek good. Back to 1 Peter 3.13, the logic goes like this. Are you someone who's been born again? Are you the kind of person who's been saved by grace? If this is true, then you'll be zealous for the good. That's your new normal. This is an an strong expression of your desire to walk before God. Back in 1 Peter 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, it says, and his ears are open to their prayer. Being eager to to, to do good, recognizing that I'm living in the presence of God, that God is watching me. In love, he's watching you. That you, you love to be in the presence of God, before the face of God, doing the work of God. And you're eager for it. You're desiring to be shown. This is your new normal. This is the definition of your life as a Christian. Now, I've, I've dwelt on this. It's very important that we understand this because the next point is that this normal is attacked. Now, if you're not clear in your mind that this is God's plan for your life, when you hit the troubles, the wind and the waves, when the thorns start growing up, you're going you're gonna to lose momentum. And honestly, that's what I've shared with you as part of what I'm struggling with at this point in my life. This is a constant attitude of watchfulness where our new normal is under attack, both from our own desires and, in Peter's case, from people in the community. Take a look at the attack. Now, in some cases, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I think here he's talking about a a point that he brought up in chapter 2, which is that there's something very attractive, even to non-Christians, about Christians who do good things. There's, don't tell me it's just the media's problem. There are far too few headlines of Christians doing good things. Now, I know it's partly the media's problem, but there are too many Christians making the headlines for doing evil things. Here's my goal as a pastor. Stay out of jail and stay out of the newspaper. Stay married. Have I set my ambitions too low? 
We need to be famous for doing good. This is my point. It needs to be... We need to think about what other people appreciate and then do that a lot, repeatedly. In other words, verse 13 is a rhetorical question that suggests that when we give ourselves to thoughtful engagement of the pursuit of what is good, true, and beautiful, many people will just leave you alone. So persecution and suffering isn't necessarily the lot of the Christian at all times, in all situations. On the other hand, verse 14, even if, he says, you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I like this because Peter's saying, look, if you're the kind of person who thinks you can sort of go in like a firebrand and kind of just preach Jesus and upset everybody in the room, and then you get thrown out and you say, oh, well, that's me being persecuted. He says, no. Maybe. But if you're passionate about doing good, you might well be praised by your enemies. That's an important feature that Peter is bringing to our attention. But it is true that when you do good, that you will be opposed. That is the facts of the case. Because of what I shared already about the radical difference between the old normal and the new normal, people don't like it when you do good. And I can't explain why, except that when I look at myself, I know I'm a sinner, and that's basically what I have by way of explanation. So while you might be left alone or even praised, it is very possible, verse 14, that you could suffer physical harm. Suffering, by the way, as a reminder, nowhere in the New Testament is the word suffering used for someone who's sick. It's primarily, this, this idea of suffering here is primarily related to suffering some sort of persecution. Also in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here, the, the pursuit of what is good will lead to slander and reviling. Slander is telling lies about you or rumors that are false. Reviling is simply degrading you as a person or insulting you and exposing your name to, um, to putting it in a bad light. So when you suffer, keeping in mind that there may well be significant periods of your life where by passionately pursuing the good, you will earn the praise of those around you. But when you suffer, and you will suffer, and we do live in a society where Christians seem to be targeted in many ways, how is your, what is your response going to be? I think of an illustration here of of, of, of playing a, a football game. This is a, a strange illustration, so I'm struggling how to explain it. Bear with me. 
The football team comes onto the field, you play the first quarter, you play the second quarter, and then they go into the locker room for halftime. Got it so far? Then only one team comes out of the locker room after halftime. The other just goes home. Well, I would say that the team that came back out onto the field to finish the game will have a decided advantage, almost no matter what the score was in the first half. This, what I'm trying to illustrate is the idea of suffering in this life is, is a little bit like that. When you, get, when you get wind that your good behavior might receive the attacks of those around you, whether it's verbal attacks, verbal, verbal abuse, or physical abuse, physical suffering, when some Christians get wind of that, they panic. And they forget that our life in this life is really only the first half of a football game. So anything that happens to you in this life is equivalent to the first and second quarters of a football game. And halftime, in my illustration, is your transition to eternal life. So no matter what happens to you in this life, no matter how much you're reviled, no matter how much you suffer, you're going to win because the other team isn't coming back on the field. And so when I say you're going to suffer an attack, I want, I want you to get it in your mind that you, you can survive this. You will survive this. And Peter specifically points to Jesus as your, as your model. So he says in verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. When you're attacked, uh, keep your eyes on Christ. He suffered for you in your place and as your example. You can do this. You can get through this. Remember who's on your side. And remember, this is a football game that has four quarters, two of which happen in this earthly life. That's the point. So this is what he means when he says, have no fear of them. No, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, what does it say? You will be blessed. You will be blessed. When you suffer, you will be blessed. Peter's looking to the second half there. He's also looking to the first half, and he's saying, even if you suffer in this life, the best way to live is by keeping your eyes on the Lord. Finding a way to navigate the difficulties of this life as a Christian. It's a narrow path. There's lots of rocks and, and things to stumble along the way. Jesus said something similar. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You have a great reward. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's like the second half of a game. What's happening now isn't the whole story. God is at work behind the scenes. He hasn't showed you the playbook. You need to trust him. It's going to work out. Don't lose heart. Honor Christ as Lord. You see what he's saying. We've seen Peter defining the new normal and showing you that you have nothing to worry about if you're attacked. When you come under fire, whether verbal or physical, whether soft or hard persecution, remember you have a calling. You don't have to take the attack, 
lying down. There are things that you can do. That's my final point. What is your response? Take a look at verse 14. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them. This is your first, your first marching order. As you're doing good and, and blessing the world and, and giving to others and turning from evil and following God and honoring Christ as Lord, your first order of business is not to be afraid. Now this is a hard, hard assignment. And if we didn't have the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done and where he's gone, it would be impossible. And if he didn't do that, it's insanity. But if he did go to heaven, having died on the cross, if he is seated on the throne of glory, then it is the only way to live. Do not be afraid. I'm thinking particularly of young people. It is a hard world to navigate. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Be humble and be bold. This phrase, do not be afraid, is actually a reference from the Old Testament. Peter is very knowledgeable about the Bible, which is awesome. And he's constantly echoing or quoting the Old Testament. Here he's quoting Isaiah 7 and 8. Now in the context, I won't spend much time on this, but in the context, there are two enemy nations of Israel that have allied themselves against God's people. This was kind of like, you know, the ancient axis of evil. And Isaiah is writing to the faithful people of God saying, don't be afraid. I know this, this political alliance is serious and it's substantial. Don't be afraid. And then Isaiah says, in Isaiah 8, he says, God himself is your sanctuary. He's going to take care of you. Don't be afraid. So that's the first response when we're trying to do good and we're attacked. The second one, which I've mentioned already, is honor the Christ, the Lord, as holy. Fearing God means you serve an audience of one. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. Honoring him as holy is like the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be thy name. You can't make God or Christ any more holy than he already is. But by your life, you can point others to him. You can show other people that their system of values, whether it be money or fame or safety and security, they're not the things that motivate you. You are too busy doing good as a born-again believer who's walking in the way of the Lord to worry about money or fame or security, at least not as your primary goal. Remember, the foundation of your life is Christ. Now, as you seek money and fame and security, you're doing it as a Christian who's been identified by Jesus as a chosen instrument. He has work for you to do. So we're honoring Christ as holy. We're hallowing his name. And then verse 15 is, you need to be ready. Look at verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but... Notice the word reason here is important. 
The word reason is the Greek word logos, where we get our word logic. And Christian logic gives hope. It's the second half of the football game. I know it's a silly illustration, but I, I think it works. You have hope. And your basic logical circuitry is oriented towards the hope of heaven and the hope that God is going to not only end evil, but reverse all that is broken in the world, all the, all the crud that we've done. And he's going to use you to do it here and now. That's what doing good is. That's what being eager for the good is. It's leaning into the evil of the world and making a difference here and now. It's fighting back against the powers of darkness. It's shining light on the darkness. It's exposing evil and correcting it at all levels for all people. Now, it's very hard to do, and we often take one step forward in our battle against evil and three or four steps back. But that's your logic. You are not going to move. That's your new program. You were running an old program before. And each one of us had a slightly different version of this self-destructive program. But the reason in you, your logic is hope-based and hope is linked to Christ. Here's the point. When someone asks you, why are you doing this stuff? Why are you so weird? My friend Doug, dude, you've changed. What's going on in your life? You need to be ready. Now, Calvin points out that we're not looking for like a theological treatise here. We don't, you don't need a seminary degree to give a reason for the hope that's in you. We're talking about, I love God, He loves me, I'm doing good. I think you can handle that. Why are you doing this? I love God, He loves me, I'm doing good. Now it's important, and he makes this qualification, and this is partly what, what I was sharing in, in my opening comments about my own story, it's important that your, your explanation of Christianity, even if it's a simple one like I just gave, is not in serious contradiction with the rest of your life. That's called hypocrisy, and that shows up in verse 16. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, again, we see that it's not necessarily your lot all your life to suffer. If it's God's will, though, you will suffer. But it's better to suffer for doing good than for do doing evil. I think I've shared this, this joke from the pulpit before, but there's a man who stands before the pearly gates, and of course it's St. Peter, and Peter is not the one that guards the pearly gates, so this is essentially fiction, but... Nevertheless, work with me. So Peter is standing, guarding the pearly gates, and the man says, uh, and he's looking through his list, and he doesn't find the man's name. And he says, what are you talking about? I, I shared the gospel, you know, all the time. And Peter says, yeah, but you forgot the part of being a jerk about it. So as you share your faith, what does Peter say here? He says, do it with gentleness. That's meekness. Not with, not with a, a desire to harm someone or to put them down. Actually interested in where they're coming from in their situation. 
in their circumstances. And by the way, the word here with gentleness and respect, the word respect is fear. Gentleness is towards your opponent, the one who's attacking you. Respect is towards God. So you're being gentle and meek and kind and gracious to your opponent, but at all times you're keeping your eyes on the Lord to respect and fear Him. So fearing God, not others, honoring Christ the Lord as holy, being ready to give an answer for your reasons, your logic, this hope logic, and making sure that your words are backed up by your life. As I conclude, my dad is fond of saying that the world that he grew up in no longer exists. And if you're older, you can resonate with that. It's, it's discouraging in some ways, but it's encouraging in other ways. We've made great gains in the past few decades. The only way that you can tell what, gain, what is truly a gain, though, or a loss, is by a standard or a norm, something that tethers us all to our most basic reality. We are created by God for God's glory, for God's purposes, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He is the basis for our norms. He's our logic behind our reasoning. He is the honor and the glory for which you have been made and to which you must strive. He's not just the reason for the season, which is a saying at Christmas time. He's the reason for all seasons, all generations of America and all mankind. There's some things that we would want to recapture about the good old days, I'm sure, but there are horrifying things that we would rather never repeat. Having said that, the new normal of the new birth concentrates on doing good in a certain way. This way is designed to capture the attention of the people around you. It's a missionary activity. It's something which translates heaven into language that other people that aren't there yet might possibly understand. And if they begin to ask questions, you need to be ready to explain where your logic comes from. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is a light to our feet and shines upon the path. We thank you that it's not just for the grown-ups, but for the young people and even the children, some of whom, hearing this message, are already making decisions about their lives. I pray that you would help them and that we as grown-ups would be of a help to them. In particular, Lord, as adults, that we would fan into flame our faith, that we would not lose hope, that we would not submit to cynicism or lose the fire of our of the joy of our salvation, that you recapture it, Lord, and revive and revitalize it. And in so doing, Lord, may we as a congregation, both young and old, work together to do good until you return. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.